You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes. Like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over wide. And then, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Hey Lurkers, welcome to episode 61. Kudo points to anyone who can guess the origin of the quote at the beginning of the episode. I will give you a hint. It's from Quint's speech in Jaws, detailing his personal shark story from World War II. In celebration of Shark Week, or Shark Month, because I think it's basically an entire month now, we're going to be covering a creepy shark story. I know some of you may think that it isn't really part of the paranormal. But like the quote, I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. It's what lurks unseen that scares the bejesus out of me. And while the podcast is primarily a paranormal topic podcast, really, I like to cover things that just scare the crap out of people. Sharks scare the crap out of some people. So since Shark Week, month, whatever, is set to launch on July 10th, we're going to be covering this topic for this week's episode. You'll remember last year for Shark Week, I covered the real-life story behind the inspiration for the movie Jaws, the shark attacks and subsequent deaths of four people in 1916 New Jersey. That was episode 15, so check that out if you haven't already. For today, we'll be looking at what is still called the worst shark attack in human history, the attack on the survivors of the USS Indianapolis. For my Jaws fans out there, this particular attack on survivors is what Quint was talking about, though the story in the movie was exaggerated for a more dramatic effect. I don't know why it was exaggerated. It's a pretty dramatic and horrific story without the need for extra exaggeration. But first, we need to get a little history and background to set the stage. The USS Indianapolis launched in 1931. It was obviously named for the city of Indianapolis in Indiana. It was actually the second ship named for the city, the first being a cargo ship built in 1918. The Indianapolis was a flagship for Scouting Force One. The scouting fleet was created in 1922 as part of a major reorganization of the U.S. Navy after World War I. The scouting fleet did reconnaissance, as the name scouting might suggest. It spent eight years in the scouting force, then became the flagship for Admiral Raymond Spruance in 1943 and 1944, while he commanded the 5th Fleet 
in battles across the Central Pacific in World War II. July 1945, the Indianapolis completed a top-secret high-speed trip to deliver uranium and other components for Little Boy, the first of two nuclear weapons to be used in combat, to the U.S. Army Air Force Base on the island of Tinian. The amount of uranium the USS Indianapolis carried was actually about half of the world's supply of uranium at that time. Little Boy was the name of the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. After they offloaded the secret cargo, Captain McVeigh stopped over in Guam. On July 28th, McVeigh and the crew put out to sea for a routine voyage from Guam to Leyte, Philippines. A 12,000-mile trip, almost due west, across the Philippine Sea. McVeigh asked about the tactical situation. He was told, Things are quiet. The Japanese are on their last legs, and there's nothing to worry about, according to Commodore James Carter. The USS Indianapolis was not equipped with sonar, and it required a destroyer escort. Captain McVeigh requested an escort, but his request was denied. Around midnight on July 30, 1945, the USS Indianapolis was torpedoed by the Imperial Japanese Navy submarine I-58. The first torpedo struck the starboard bow, killing dozens instantly. The second torpedo struck a midship on the starboard side, causing explosions and massive damage. Because the ship was top-heavy, it began listing to the side. Twelve minutes later, it rolled completely over. The stern rose into the air, and she sank. There were few lifeboats, and many of the crew were without life jackets. Of the 1,195 aboard, about 300 went down with the ship. The remaining 890 faced exposure, dehydration, saltwater poisoning, and shark attack. Hundreds of sharks were drawn to the wreck because of the noise of the explosions and the scent of the blood in the water. They picked off the dead and the wounded first, and then they went for the survivors. Tony King, who was a crewman on the USS Indianapolis, said, Men started getting ideas that the ship wasn't far in the distance. Promises of pretty girls carrying fresh buttermilk biscuits or a cold drink just over the horizon. It wasn't hard to be talked into things out there, so a group of us swam off, following the leader, not wanting to be left behind. There were a lot of sharks. So many, I'd see them swimming below me. So many friends. Gone. Granville Crane was a machinist mate, second class, on the USS Indianapolis, and he said, Men began drinking salt water, so much that they were delirious. In fact, a lot of them had weapons like knives, and they'd be so crazy they'd be fighting amongst themselves and killing one another. And then there'd be others that drank so much salt water that they were seeing things. They'd say, the India's down below, and they're giving out fresh water and food in the galley. And they'd swim down, and a shark would get them, and you could see sharks eating your comrade. 
Eugene Morgan, bosun's mate, second class, remembered. All the time, the sharks never let up. We had a cargo net that had styrofoam things attached to keep it afloat. There were about 15 sailors on this, and suddenly 10 sharks hit it and there was nothing left. This went on and on and on. Hundreds of sharks from miles away headed for the wreckage. Sharks have a keen sense of smell. Up to two-thirds of the total weight of a shark's brain is dedicated to smell. They're super sensitive to smells that are important to their survival, including scents produced by potential predators, prey, or a mate. But they can also detect movement. Basically, sharks are able to sense pressure changes and electrical current from things like muscle movement in prey. But to continue with the eyewitness accounts, Lowell Dean Cox, or L.D. Cox as he was called, said, We were sunk at midnight. I saw the first one, the first morning after daylight. They were big. Some of them, I swear, were 15 feet long. They were continually there, mostly feeding off the dead bodies. Thank goodness there were lots of dead people floating in the area. Then they came for the living. We were losing three or four each night and day. You were constantly in fear because you'd see them all the time. Every few minutes you'd see their fins, a dozen to two dozen fins in the water. They would come up and bump you. I was bumped a few times. You'd never know when they were going to attack you. Some of the men would pound the water and kick and yell when the sharks attacked. Most decided sticking together in a group was their best defense. But with each attack, the clouds of blood in the water, the screaming, the splashing, more sharks would come. In that clear water, you could see the sharks circling. Then every now and then, like lightning, one would come straight up and take a sailor and take him straight down. One came up and took a sailor next to me. It was just somebody yelling, screaming, or getting bit. Sailors tried to quarantine themselves away from anyone with an open wound, and when someone died, they would push the body away. It took four days for the survivors to be rescued. There were a lot of reasons why it took so long. None of them were good reasons. Most of them were stupid but they were finally spotted by a plane. A seaplane manned by Lieutenant Adrian Marks returned to drop rafts and supplies to the survivors to use until rescue craft could get to them. But when Marks saw men being attacked by sharks, he disobeyed his orders and he landed the seaplane on the ocean and began helping the injured and the stragglers. There were an estimated 150 deaths from sharks though we'll never really know the actual count. Experts believe the likely species of sharks involved were tiger sharks and the oceanic white tip. Tiger sharks grow to a length of 10 to 13 feet, and females are the larger sex. Some females have been measured at 16 feet, and there is even some who report some tigers around 24. Tiger sharks are reported to be responsible for a large portion of fatal shark bites, 
and regarded as one of the most dangerous shark species. Oceanic white-tipped sharks are about the same size as a tiger shark, at around 11 to 13 feet in length, though most grow no more than 10 feet. White tips are considered one of the more dangerous sharks to humans. They are known to have attacked survivors of plane and shipwrecks and are suspected to be responsible for several unrecorded human fatalities. I don't really know what that means. If it's unrecorded, how do they know they were fatalities? On August 19, 2017, the wreck of the USS Indianapolis was found 18,000 feet below the surface of the Philippine Sea. The attacks on the survivors of the USS Indianapolis remains the largest single shark attack on humans. But I'm not done because I found another story which always seems to happen when I think I'm nearing the end of my research. The RMS Nova Scotia was a 6,796-ton UK transatlantic ocean liner and Royal Mail ship. In World War II, she was turned into a troop ship. During the Second World War, 93,000 prisoners of war were interned in South Africa, and all but 4,000 of them were Italian. One of the vessels used to transport these people was the British steamship Nova Scotia. Some 765 Italian prisoners of war boarded the Nova Scotia at Misawa. Also aboard were 134 South African guards and troops, plus her British crew. In all, about a thousand people were on the Nova Scotia on November 28, 1942, when, at 9.30, she was torpedoed by the German submarine U-177, commanded by Captain Lieutenant Robert Geisey, less than 50 kilometers off St. Lucia. Three torpedoes struck the troop ship. Several oil bunkers caught fire, causing many burn casualties, and the port lifeboats were shattered. She sank within five minutes. The crew managed to launch only one lifeboat. Other survivors depended on life rafts or pieces of wreckage. There were hundreds of people in the water. Some drowned, others were choked by oil, and many were taken by sharks. It has been said that there, was, there has never been another shark attack of such proportions in the Indian Ocean. The Johannesburg Sunday Times recorded the tales of survivors Vic Davidson, Eric Manson, and Nat Hermans, who said, The sea was alive with sharks, and dozens of men were taken. Another survivor, George Kanaw of Johannesburg, reported, There were hundreds of men around me in the water, swimming and clinging to bits of wreckage and rafts. Another South African swam over and clung to the oar. He was wearing a life jacket. The two of us drifted on a strong current until the next morning. Other survivors were visible around rafts, gratings, etc. When it became light, my companion said he was going to let go and refused to listen when I told him not to give up. So I asked him to leave me his life jacket. As he was loosening it, he suddenly screamed and the upper part of his body rose out of the water. He fell back 
and I saw the water had become red with blood, and that his foot was bitten off. At this moment, I saw the form of a shark swimming excitedly around, and I paddled away as fast as I could. Then a number of sharks swarmed around me. I estimated their lengths at between six and seven feet. Every now and then, one would come straight for me, and I splashed as hard as I could, and this seemed to drive them away. The submarine commander radioed Berlin for help to be sent to the survivors, and instructions were sent to Mozambique. A Portuguese frigate commanded by Captain de Budo left Lorenco Marquez 14 hours after the sinking, reaching the site at 6 o'clock the following morning, and they took 143 survivors on board. The rescuers had to club the sharks away. Most were the oceanic white-tip shark. Although not much more was learned about the behavior of the sharks after the sinking, a letter written by Les Delis of East London tells us about one man who was lost to the sharks. Private Sammy Levine was a soldier mate of mine on the staff of Number 4 General Hospital, a field hospital serving the troops in Egypt. Sammy served as a handyman in the unit. He could always conjure up something out of nothing, and as was fitting to his calling in the army, was a champion scrounger of articles not obtainable by the unit. As such, he was invaluable and very useful. Sammy was a quaint character and was much thought of generally. He was always on hand to conjure up anything required at short notice. Now, Sammy had a pal, a small monkey acquired in Kenya, which accompanied him to Egypt when the East Africa campaign packed up. Wherever Sammy went, the little pet was on his shoulder. Some years after the war, I met an ex-soldier, and over a cup of tea, this chap mentioned that he was a survivor of the torpedoed Nova Scotia, and in discussing the circumstances of the tragedy, we discovered that we both knew Sammy Levine, and that the last he saw of Sammy was from a small raft on which a few survivors were clinging. There was no space for another person, and some yards away, Sammy was swimming with his monkey on his shoulder when he was taken by a huge shark. Both he and the monkey disappeared. So passed Sammy, not much of a parade ground soldier, but a wizard at his own calling and much loved by his comrades. In all, 192 people survived, 43 of whom were South Africans. Approximately 750, including Sammy Levine, perished. So that's the end of my tales of shark attacks on World War II shipwreck survivors. Pretty gruesome. I can't even imagine what it must have been like to have been on a ship that was torpedoed, to be floating around the ocean, and in the case of the USS Indianapolis, they were nowhere near land. So you're floating in the middle of the ocean, there's nothing around you, you're clinging to whatever debris you can find, and sharks are circling. So you've managed to live through the torpedoing of your ship and the sinking of your ship, 
and you might get eaten by a shark. And you don't know when, you don't know if, and you're watching your fellow crewmen be attacked. I, I can't even imagine what that must be like. I am going to leave with this one little tidbit here. has nothing to do with shipwrecks, nothing to do with World War II, but it does have to do with a three-meter-long great white shark in Australia. So in 2003, scientists tagged a nine-foot great white shark in Australia as part of their research study. However, upon checking the tracking device, something weird occurred. The device detected that suddenly the shark plummeted 1,900 feet in a matter of seconds and its body temperature skyrocketed nearly 20 degrees. The only viable explanation, according to the researchers, some sort of massive sea creature must have swallowed it, dragging it deeper into our ocean and turning it into a meal. Yet what could have possibly eaten an animal this huge? Some theories include a monster shark, though today most scientists believe the culprit was possibly a sperm whale. They still really don't know for sure. And that's going to do it for this Shark Week-inspired episode. You can find Lurk episodes wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast or at lurkpodcast.com. You can also find us on YouTube. Links to our social media accounts can also be found on the website. Don't forget, we have t-shirts and hoodies available at lurkpodcastmerch.com. And until next time, stay out of the water and keep lurking.